Welcome to episode 149 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. If you want to burn fat, gain energy, and enhance your health by changing when you eat, not what you eat, with no calorie counting, then this show is for you. I'm Melanie Avalon, author of What, When, Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine. And I'm here with my co-host, Jen Stevens, author of Delay, Don't Deny, Living an Intermittent Fasting Lifestyle. For more on us, check out ifpodcast.com, melanieavalon.com, and jenstevens.com. Please remember, the thoughts and opinions on this podcast do not constitute medical advice or treatment. So, pour yourself a cup of black coffee, a mug of tea, or even a glass of wine, (laughs) if it's that time, and get ready for the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. One more thing before we jump in. Did you know that common ingredients found in skincare and makeup products can actually disrupt your endocrine system? These endocrine disruptors are a silent threat that can have significant impact on your health, including something that is very important to me, fertility. Your skin is your body's largest organ and what you put on it matters. Endocrine disruptors are chemicals that interfere with the natural hormonal communication in the body. It also matters during pregnancy. And that's one of the reasons I pay close attention to what I put on my skin while being pregnant. Studies have shown that exposure to endocrine disruptors can affect both male and female fertility. For women, these disruptors can lead to irregular menstrual cycles, ovulation issues, and even polycystic ovarian syndrome or PCOS. In men, they can reduce sperm quality and quantity, making it even more challenging to conceive. But it's not just about fertility. When it comes to fat loss, one of the reasons that endocrine disruptors can get in the way of fat loss is because a lot of our toxins are actually stored in our fat. It's a way that our bodies protect us from those toxins. These toxic compounds can even work synergistically, amplifying their harmful effects and making it that much harder to shed unwanted body fat. All of these reasons are why I am obsessed with a company called Beauty Counter. The founder actually started the company when she learned about the potential dangers of toxic chemicals and their link to health issues, specifically miscarriages and infertility. While pregnant, I make sure to only use Beauty Counter products. It's one of the only makeup lines that is officially recommended from the Environmental Working Group. What really sets Beauty Counter apart is their unwavering commitment to protecting us, the consumer consumers from the hidden dangers that lurk in conventional beauty products. Beauty Counter goes above and beyond, rigorously screening every single ingredient that goes into their products, ensuring that they are safe, clean, and free from harmful toxins. They're not just a beauty brand, they're a movement for change, advocating for stronger regulations in the beauty industry. With Beauty Counter, I know that I can trust that the skincare and makeup that I use are not only effective, but also safe for me and my family. They have skincare lines for every skin type, as well as so many other incredible products. I absolutely love their overnight resurfacing peel. It's my favorite way to get anti-aging benefits in a skincare product. The makeup is absolutely amazing. I have tried alternative beauty products in the past and none of them truly performed. But with Beauty Counter, the foundation is so amazing. It makes me feel like my skin can breathe and it looks so dewy and beautiful. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. 
New customers can use the code CLEANFORALL20 for 20% off their first order. Beautycounter.com slash Vanessa Spina. All right, friends, now back to the show. Hi, everybody, and welcome. This is episode number 149 of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon, and I'm here with Jen Stevens. Hi, everybody. How are you today, Jen? Well, I'm trying not to get blown away. We're just starting to record about, let's see, 30 minutes ago, and I sent Melanie a message and said, help, tornado warning, I'm going to get in the closet. And luckily, the tornado warning has ended, so now I'm going to have one eye on the radar and one eye on the screen. And (laughs) if you hear a sound like a freight train, it's probably, I'll probably be fine. No, I'm just kidding. It's okay. The storms are going a little bit to the north, but there was a brief tornado warning, and so it's always scary. Yeah, I was quite shocked to know Jen's house did not have a tornado cellar with all of her crazy rooms. It does not. We were actually, we're built on a slab, which we didn't pay attention to before we bought the house, but we're on a slab. The house was built in 79. So we don't have any kind of basement or we have so many attics. Like our house is like so many attic spaces, but that's not where you would want to go in a tornado. (laughs) What does that indicate being built on a slab? A concrete foundation. As opposed to A basement or crawl space. Oh. Yeah. Okay. I see. When you have a basement, is that on top of a slab though? Isn't there at some point? Well, they dig it down. It's under the ground. A basement would be dug down under the ground. And a crawl space may or may not be down under the ground a little bit. It just depends on how they dug it out. We had a house before that had like a walk-in crawl space because we were on a little hill a few houses ago, but you could walk into it at one end, but it was really just a big, big crawl space. And what do I think of when I hear crawl space? I don't know. Nancy Drew. Okay. (laughs) Murder mysteries. Oh, right. But not murder, as we discussed. (laughs) Not murder. Not murder. Nancy. Nancy was just looking for the old clock, but it was quite a mystery. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, but anyway, it was a little scary. I like I had a little panic moment. And when I was running around the house, I was like, okay, where do I go if there's a tornado? And I'm looking around. And I'm like, well, not the two-story great room full of windows. I don't want to be there. And I'm like, not here, not, you know, so anyway. So I was like, well, here we go. Master bedroom on the bottom floor. The closet's the most interior. So I was like, do I get all four cats and bring them in there with me? Anyway, by then I realized, I looked at the radar and I realized I was going to be okay. But now I have a plan. Now I know where to go. I remember growing up whenever I would think about if there was some sort of impending disaster, how my priority would be. I got to get all the animals into the house. Yeah. Yeah. I did take stock of where are the animals and I found them. They're all in the house. So that was good. We kept them in because of the weather because it's raining. And I also, this is a day I'm grateful not to be a teacher because, you know, this happened at 2.30 and, you know, the schools are all having, they're having to get into that tornado cover position. The students have to get, you know, you have to drop what you're doing, go get in the hall, duck and cover. I remember, I feel like there was a change. At some point, it was supposed to be get under a certain thing, and then they changed their mind. Am I making this up? For what? Oh, I don't know if it was earthquakes or tornadoes. If there's a tornado warning, you duck and cover at school. You go out in the hall, you they, you have to get in the position. Yeah. I don't know what I'm thinking of. It was something to do with the ideal type of thing to get under. I don't know. If this rings a bell for anybody, you can let me know. <laughs> I do have great teacher experience. We were driving down the road the other day, Chad and I were, and we drove by an elementary school. He said, what are they doing? Why are they all outside? And I just looked at it and I said, fire drill. (laughs) 
you can tell. I was like, that's a fire drill. That's what a fire drill looks like. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't miss those at all. Not at all. But anyway, we're all safe. So that's good. I mean, there's some really bad radar everywhere. I hope everywhere is safe. I hope everybody stays safe with the crazy weather. Agreed. So y'all are having some storms over your way as well. You're farther west. Yes. I just want it to be winter and it's just not. (laughs) It's very upsetting, but it's okay. It's okay. I really, something really crazy yesterday. What is that? One of my best friends from college, she's nominated for an Oscar. Okay. That is so fun. I know. I don't think I didn't realize it because she'd been posting all these pictures of the Oscars and I thought she was just part of a group that was working on something that was nominated. I hadn't really like realized, oh, you go to the Oscar website and it's her name. Wow. What category? Best animated short. I think it's a, um, a Pixar film that she produced. Ooh. It is so much fun when you see someone that you know from college or from earlier in your life and they're like really doing something awesome. Like somebody I went to college with was one of CNN's, you know, 10 people of the year for the work he did in the campfires. Oh, wow. Last year. And I'm like, I know that guy. I was like in the airport. I'm like, told some stranger, I know him. I know him. (laughs) That's so funny. Oh, my goodness. It was funny. (laughs) I mean, he might, he probably doesn't even remember who I am, but I knew who he was. So I was excited. (laughs) Yeah, it's really exciting. Although I did get recognized yesterday in public. Really? Has that happened before? Yeah, it has a few times, but yeah, it happened yesterday. What happened? We were at the boat store. I've talked before that my husband had a little fishing boat. Now we're trying to sell the boat because we haven't been using it because we've been going to the beach instead. So we were talking to them about you know, them putting the boat on consignment or if they knew someone who wanted to buy the boat and the girl was writing down, she's like, oh my God, you're Jen Stevens. <laughs> it was fun. But again, this is Augusta. Augusta is the largest small town in America. That's what, what we like to say. And she and I had 23 mutual friends. I didn't know her like on Facebook. So that's really not like being spotted in the wild. It's still, it's still funny. It's still a little shocking though when it happens. I'm like, oh, yeah, I sure am. (laughs) The only time it ever happened just randomly when I was walking somewhere was at Target one time. But it's happened in restaurants. It's happened. Where else did it happen? Oh, at the the curtain store. Oh, yeah, I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. (laughs) It's just weird. So, but it is. Augusta's a small town and, you know, we're all connected here. I have some random fasting and such related diet health related notes I've been taking throughout the week. Some little quick fun facts. So one is really quick. I was talking with you, Jen, about how I was listening to Mark Matson, who was on Seamland's podcast recently. And he actually pointed out that almost, I don't know if it's all or almost all of the studies on calorie restriction in rats are done via intermittent fasting, which is a big factor to consider. So all the studies they've done on, say that again, this is big. I don't know if it's all or almost all, but the majority of the studies where they're testing the effects of calorie restriction in rodents, they do that by using intermittent fasting because they restrict the rodents to eat a certain amount, you know, at this one time. But they're putting them in an eating window. I don't know if it's like a window or a feeding system because they can't provide the rats free access 
to food constantly if it needs to be calorie restricted. So it's like at a certain time. They're like, here's your food. And then, oh, yeah, I think I remember reading a study where the rats ended up eating one meal a day because they ate it so quickly. Like they gave them all their food and they ate it in this quick period of time. Well, yeah, but his point was similar to that. That they're fasting. Yeah, the point was that even these studies that aren't even talking about fasting and rodents, they're talking about calorie restriction. At the same time, they were also fasting. So it's like, how do we know? What's, yeah, that's true. Good point. It's so hard to separate things in a study. I guess the only other way you would do it is if you just released a little tiny bit of feed every hour. Here's a little bit. Here's a little bit. Here's a little bit. That would be more like the standard way that people are being advised to eat in today's world. That would be really, I would love to see that. I would like to see the rats fed tiny little bits throughout the day versus the same exact amount in a one period of time. Yeah, same. That might have been done just going off of what he said, but it was interesting to say the least. Very interesting. And then I just learned just a second ago, (laughs) super random, you know, AST and ALT, the like liver enzymes? No, not really. (laughs) I mean, I'm sure I come across it, but I couldn't have told you that. If you had said pop quiz, what's A, whatever those A things, AST, ALT, I would have been like, I can't remember. Okay. Well, for listeners, AST and ALT are liver enzymes. So this might be more of it. Yes. So for people who are interested in that topic, they're often like lumped together as a marker of, you know, liver health stress, you know, alcoholic problems or non-alcoholic fatty liver, things like that. I'd always wondered what the difference was. And I just learned that AST is more a reflection of like the mitochondria. So elevated AST levels would indicate like mitochondrial type issues in the liver. And ALT is more related to fatty liver, like triglyceride formations in the liver. And it's more longer term. That's just a little fun fact for anybody who's interested in AST versus ALT because... Yeah, that's the kind of stuff that I just skim over when I'm reading because I'm like, I don't need to know that. So I just go on by. (laughs) I feel like out of all the blood markers, I feel like a lot of people are sort of familiar with AST slash ALT. But I never had heard the difference discussed before. So I got really excited. That just happened. I was listening to a Peter Atia Drive podcast all about fructose. Oh, that was something else I learned. <laughs> Did you know that fructose is the only type of sugar? Well, that's a bad word to use, but carb, <laughs> that's a bad word to use as well. I guess carb. Yeah. It's the only type of carb that is actually requires more energy. Okay. How do I say this? It has like a negative net energy effect to be processed. What, fructose? Uh-huh. Huh, no. I think it evens out in the end or like it rebounds. Basically, the idea was it temporarily... Because in, in order to create energy from something, it takes energy to create energy. To t- like transform the energy into usable form. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like you need a little bit of energy to do that. To take the energy from the fructose that you consume and make it in a form that your body can use, right? Yeah. It has to do with the, what is it? Like the dehydrogenase something, something, enzyme, something. I don't know. It requires a certain amount of ATP to do that compared to glucose. And it seemed like the net effect actually, I don't know how transient that effect is, but at some point it's like you're it requires more energy than you're getting from it, which was very interesting. If, if any of that was of interest to anybody, it's from a Peter Atia episode with Rick Johnson. So 
I will put a link to that in the intermittent fasting podcast, stuff we like playlist. I obviously gravitated towards it because my obsession with fruit. Fascinating. I know that makes me think about so many things because I know that, you know, if you're consuming a lot of high fructose corn syrup, you know, that's linked to just so many negative health outcomes. And so I don't, I don't know what to do with that information. (laughs) Yeah. My concern around all of that is I really think demonizing fruit is, it's all based on these high fructose corn syrup studies, which are completely different. Oh yeah. I can, it's a completely different thing. Yeah. A piece of fruit versus high fructose corn syrup, totally different the way the the body uses it. And that was another point was that um, apparently it also has to do with the load of fructose at any one moment. So when you're having like fruit juices or high fructose corn syrup and getting that massive amount of fructose, that's what creates like an overwhelm effect that leads to all these problems with fat storage and fatty liver and things like that. Right. And I think because that leads to fatty liver. Yeah. Because the takeaway so far of what this episode I'm reading is actually fructose is very encouraging of fatty liver but it really is like the dose and the context. And he was saying that, for example, companies could construct studies with high fructose corn syrup and make it seem like it doesn't have negative effects. All they have to do is administer it slowly throughout the day so that you're not getting it all at once. And then you can show it, you wouldn't have like as much of the negative effects. I think he said that they've actually done that, which is upsetting. Oh yeah, because the way that you can manipulate Manipulate, that's the word I was looking for. The way you can manipulate it based on so many factors. Yeah. That's why everybody's so confused. I know. I mean, it just keeps coming back to, this is why I so simplified what I really would like to even learn about. You know, instead of like, you know, trying to learn about the different liver enzymes and what they do, (laughs) I'm just like, okay, real food from nature, thumbs up, (laughs) overly ultra processed, thumbs down. That's all. That's as in-depth as I really feel like being these days. Does that make sense? No, it does. And I think the reason I'm so obsessive is when I'm trying to like figure out why certain things are happening. But yeah, no, 100%, like the whole foods route, I just feel like it's the way to go. So like, you know, eat an apple. Yes. Drink a Coke. Yeah, probably not so good. Although I did drink a real Coke yesterday. I drank a real Coke yesterday. Is anyone shocked? I enjoyed it. I don't drink them very often. <laughs> An extension of that as well is because I think it could go even one step further of, you know, yes, whole foods, but then you could think of it in a paradigm of what is a normal accessibility to these whole foods, because I think that would short circuit or that would prevent the problem of, because you could say the whole foods thing, but then that could materialize as a person eating, you know, two pounds of nuts with fruit which would probably not create a metabolically healthy state in many people, like with the hype. But then if you extend it to think, oh, but naturally, would you be able to just happen upon two pounds of nuts? Like, no, that's like not a normal, (laughs) that's not really possible (laughs) in nature. You'd have to go individually, you know, gather and shell each one of those nuts. So that would be like, I feel like the ultimate quote protection. I think so too. I think that, you know, if we really think about, you know, things that were seasonal, things that were available at certain times of the year, how much you were likely to come across. You know, like if you're eating, you know, a handful of raisins, for example, just these concentrated forms of things that people would not have been sitting around eating. People didn't have access to all these things year round either. Yeah, exactly. 
I'm old enough that when I was a little girl, my grandparents were putting an orange in my Christmas stocking because when they were little, that was like so special. Oh, man. An orange was like amazing. But now we can have oranges all the time. I could go get 40 oranges, you know, so. And these like nut bins and yeah, frozen fruit bags. and So there's something to be said about eating seasonally, eating the foods that in the context of how they would have been available. Exactly. All right. Shall we jump in to things? Yes. Oh, my son is here. Hold on a second. Oh, wait, really quickly. Speaking of not that son, but your other son, we just released the most updated version of my app, Food Sense Guide. So for listeners who don't have it yet, it's super updated now. So it, it compares over 300 foods for potentially problematic compounds that you might react to. So things like gluten, I added lectins, FODMAPs, salicylates, whether or not something is a nightshade, lots of things. And we just updated it. You could create lists before, but now you can like write notes in your list. So if you wanted to like make recipes or, you know, write notes about how you react to a food, it also has the ability to share and print. So I kept getting requests from that from people. They wanted to be able to, you know, print out their lists or share it or save it to their computer. So you can do that now as well. So, yep, I am super excited, super grateful. It's called Food Sense Guide, and I will put a link to it in the show notes. I'm so excited because I got lots of amazing endorsements for it. So now the description in the iTunes store has a lot of endorsements from people I really, really admire. For example, Dr. Ruscio, who we've had on the podcast, and some other really amazing people. So I'm very grateful for that. That is very exciting, Melanie. Yay. And I love that you worked on it with Cal. I know. He's great. He is great. He's so great. That is Jin's son, if anybody's wondering. (laughs) (laughs) For anyone who read Delay, Don't Deny, he's the one who created the window app that he no longer owns because he sold it in the spring. But I'm just so proud of him. All amazing things. Alrighty. So to start things off, we have a question from Carolina and the subject is I effing when stressed question mark. And Carolina says, dear Jen and Melanie, let me start off by saying I love you both so much. I live in LA and commute an hour each way to work. I've listened to every episode, some a few times over, and you both always, always keep me in the best of company. Anyway, I've been I effing pretty regularly for about a year, but in the last month or so I've fallen by the wayside. Lots of emotionally upsetting things going on in my life. And of course, I began stress eating and self-soothing with food. I'm trying to get back on my normal 24 schedule, but I'm finding it so tough. Plus that little breakfast omelet loving voice in my head tells me I'm stressed and therefore I should not add more stress. I eat with IF and just eat the darned eggs. I usually do. I know you've said IFing is good stress, Jen. I loved your blurb about exercise and it ripping your muscles. But I wonder whether it's the kind of stress that will aid in overall healing or whether I should focus on quelling the other stresses in my life first before taking on this extra challenge. Is the white knuckling to get back into IF while already stressed with other unrelated aspects of life a good idea? Thank you both so much. All right. What are your thoughts, Jen? Yeah, that's a great question. By the way, if anybody hears a thunderstorm, it just got really dark and it's raining really hard. (laughs) So if you hear a lot of rain, that's what it is. But I think we're okay. Anyway, Carolina, basically you don't want to do IF in a way that makes you feel more stressed. But think about this. 
the whole idea of, you know, stopping IF completely and just, you know, throwing caution to the wind and eating all day long with the stress eating, that is not helping you feel less stressed. Those are temporary. You know, you might feel better at the moment while you're eating that food, but then when you're done, that voice comes in your head and you're like, why did I do that? Why did I eat all that? So that actually makes it more stressful. My suggestion would be come up with a a way of intermittent fasting right now that does not feel stressful to you. You know, maybe that's going to be a 12-12 or 16-8, you know, just whatever feels doable on a day-to-day basis. You know, okay, so 24 may not be what feels right to you right now. That may feel too stressful for you. Don't do it if it does. But, you know, I think it's not an all or nothing. It's not like you're either doing 24 or you're eating all day. Figure out a way that you can just ease into intermittent fasting, just relax into it as a lifestyle on a day-to-day basis and do it in a way that feels stress-free. That would be my recommendation. What do you think, Melanie? Yeah, I think that's great. And I think people often do exactly that. It's like either IF or eat all the things all the time. It doesn't have to be so extreme like that. So there's this book, and I know this isn't the context of binging or anything like that, but there's this book I've talked about in the podcast before called Never Binge Again. And it's fascinating because it's all about this voice in our head, kind of what Carolina was talking about. She talks about like the little breakfast omelet loving voice in her head that says, you're stressed, eat the food. I think it's really fascinating, the voice that we can have surrounding all of this it can be hard to know what's intuitive and what is just wanting to soothe yourself with food. And that's why I actually really, really recommend that book. It's fascinating. What he basically says is that you should come up with a plan at a time that you're clear-headed and can make like a conscious decision. Come up with a food plan with like bright lines. So kind of like what Jen said, you know, maybe that's a larger window. And then you stick to that. And then you don't listen to like these voices in your head that try to like convince you otherwise out of it. It's really, really fascinating because one thing he says is that if you're stressed and you have something like if you have like six problems and then you turn to food to try to fix that, now you probably just have seven problems. (laughs) You know, like it doesn't fix the six problems and it probably just adds another problem. So yeah, I would actually really recommend checking out that book as far as like dealing with this voice in the head. And then as far as like whether or not IF is, you know, good stress or a bad stress, I do think can definitely be too stressful. That's why it could be good, like Jim was saying, to have, you know, a longer window. Because in such a case, you can definitely find a time-restricted eating pattern that will work for your body, I believe. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. I think the majority of people can. And you know, Melanie, you know how people always say intermittent fasting is a stress on your body? And we, we talked about, you know, being a good stress. You know what else is a stress on your body? Eating all the time, all the waking hours. I'm glad you brought that up. I was going to say, that's probably more of a stress. I think so too. I I really do. You know, somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot. You know, the too much intermittent fasting stress versus the too much eating all day stress. Somewhere in the middle is your sweet spot. And Melanie can't tell you what it is. And I can't tell you what it is. And it might not be the same for you every single day. Exactly. So I'll put a link to that book in the show notes. All right. Shall we go on to the next question? So this question is from Betty, and the subject is, what about calcium? Hi, ladies. I binged on your podcast when I first started IF in March 2018. After being 
mildly obese or worse all my adult life, I now at 61 weigh less, 116, than I did in high school, 120, down from an all-time high of 240, plus many other non-scale victories, clearer skin, knee surgery canceled, more energy, etc. I even feel like my hair is less white. I still listen to all your podcasts, plus those of other fasters. I've never heard anyone address the issue of bone health. I know autophagy takes care of muscle tissue, recycling other unused proteins, but what about our bones and teeth? I rarely drink milk, and although I love broccoli, I'm sure I don't meet dietary guidelines for calcium. I haven't had any bone density testing since starting IF. I also got quite lax about taking any supplements. Not sure where to go from here. Do you have any info on this? Keep up the good work, changing lives for the better. God bless you. I loved this one. I did too. Weighs less than she did in high school. It's crazy. It's amazing. Have we talked about this before, Melanie? I know I've talked about it on my other podcast, but the whole idea of think back to how much you weighed your senior year in high school, and that's probably a good goal weight for you. I've just heard that. I'm pretty much the size I was in high school. So I love that Betty is too. That's a really interesting way of framing things. Like that's your body's natural weight. I think that we're going to see over time that won't be the same anymore because now kids are, right, you know, heavier earlier. So, but speaking to bones, so I think this is actually huge because bone health is so important for so many things, and we're not really aware of it until we, you know, get a scan and it reveals problems or somebody gets a fracture. You know, it's like the silent nutrient store in your body that we're not testing but it's so important for health overall. And I have so many thoughts about all this. So basically a lot of people think that bones are, there's this idea that they're set in stone, no pun intended, but really they're a living thing and they can constantly mineralize and demineralize the calcium and the other minerals stored in there can go in and out. I think this is really honestly a huge potential problem for a lot of people I get nervous about this for a lot of people on like ketogenic diets and carnivore diets who aren't paying attention to mineral status in the body because there's often this argument that, for example, like things like acidity in the body that's so tightly controlled and we shouldn't worry about it then because the body will control it. But the thing is, in order to neutralize acidity in the body, it requires a buffer from minerals. And if you're not getting those from your diet, I mean, they have to be coming from somewhere. So they can come from your bone, for example. And if you're not getting enough minerals in your diet, or if you're not absorbing them properly, again, they can come from the bones. I think this is a huge thing that we probably should be paying more attention to than we are. And then it's really complicated because if you research like calcium supplementation and, you know, dairy and bone health, and it's literally all over the place. With dairy, for example, we see studies showing it's is good for bone health, but then we see there's actually not a correlation with vegetables and calcium. The absorption rate is very different based on different vegetables and based on how they're cooked. And I mean, it's just very, very complicated. So there's actually a really good book I recommend. It's called Rebuild Your Bones. The subtitle is a 12-week osteoporosis protocol. I'm not saying you have osteoporosis, but it has amazing information about what supports our bones and just a typical, you know, dietary approaches to encourage that. So I'll put a link to that in the show notes. I actually really want to get them on for an episode about bone health on my other podcast. It's by Mira and Jason K. 
Calton. But the findings around bone health are actually pretty shocking. So like by age 30, I think it's like, could be wrong. I think it's around like 70% of women likely have osteopenia, which is like the precursor to osteoporosis. And if people are wondering the difference between osteopenia and osteoporosis, it's literally just how far of a standard deviation away you are from normal bone health. So it's not like one is a disease and the other's not. It's just like how demineralized or how mineralized are your bones. As far as like IF and bones, so what supports bones is actually strength, like weight-bearing exercise is very supportive of bones. I believe anything like that's metabolically supportive of the body is going to be very supportive of bones. So I think intermittent fasting definitely can be supportive of bone health, especially if it's creating a anti-inflammatory state, if it's supporting muscle, because muscles also correlated to bone health. Fasting, I don't think is going to strip away your bones or, any, or anything like that. Um, I think it'll be the opposite, kind of like the way we see with intermittent fasting that it supports muscle growth, even though, you know, while fasting, you would think you'd be you know, losing muscle in the end, it actually supports muscle. I'm on the fence right now about the proper way as far as calcium supplements, what my thoughts are on that. I'm really on the fence. One option people often do is like whole bone type calcium supplements is often recommended. There's calcium citrate, which might be more easily absorbable. There is dairy, but like I said, it's really, really complicated when it comes to that. And yeah, there's just, there's a lot there. And it's something I think it's like the silent epidemic because you kind of, you probably don't realize if it's a problem until, you know, you get a fracture or something. So one last little thing is a lot of the drugs that are actually prescribed for bone health or rebuilding your bones, they actually are correlated to increased fracture risk because they can encourage the bones to retain calcium, but then at the same time, it interrupts the natural flow of the bone. So the bone actually becomes hard and brittle in a way. So it's more easy for it to fracture. So that's one of the problems with the conventional approach to addressing bone health. That's why I think being aware of it and a nutrient-rich diet that's supportive of bone health is likely key. It was really long. Jen, what what are your thoughts on this? This is going to sound very anecdotal, but I have heard that Dr. Jason Fung and his practice, they are reporting that patients that they're using fasting as part of their protocol are experiencing greater bone density over time. That's fantastic. I think that's fascinating. It's one of those things, you know, they're treating patients actively every single day, you know, with, with fasting as part of their protocol. And they're seeing, you know, we'll hear the things that we're seeing in our patients. And for them to say that they're seeing a correlation between fasting and increased bone density, you know, that's not a clinical study. It's, you know, anecdotally being reported by them in their practice. Could there, you know, be a clinical study that came out of it? That would be awesome. But I did just want to say that. So, you know, I, I think it's that whole, you know, autophagy with, you know, recycling proteins, that sort of thing. I really think when we're in the fasted state, our body gets great at figuring out where things need to be. Yeah, I agree. And that's why I think it's people in general should actually be very careful with supplementing specific nutrients because I think it's something where you want to work with a really knowledgeable functional practitioner because I do think the body should be pretty intuitive with nutrients and it can be hard to know what needs to be supplemented, you know, what doesn't. I think an exception might be something like magnesium. I think it's pretty hard to overdose on magnesium, especially given the... The way the body handles it if you do. 
<laughs> if you overdose on magnesium, it has a laxative effect. And so your body just releases it that way. And I think like the magnesium depleted state of like food today, I think that's one of the exceptions where that and I was going to say even vitamin D, but I don't know, because that can even get high. So it's, yeah, it's really tricky. It's tricky, tricky, but I definitely wouldn't fear fasting for this issue. Right. Exactly. I actually feel like it's probably more helpful for me than harmful. Oh, I agree. Yeah. Same with like the muscle building. So. Oh yeah. All right. Shall we go on to the next question? Yes. Right. This comes from Ashley and the subject is need to change things up. And Ashley says, I've been fasting on and off for a couple years, but just got serious about it with a clean fast eight weeks ago. I've been doing typically 24 but I can range from 19.5 to 23.1, depending on how I feel that day. I've been doing an evening window. I had not lost any weight or any inches. I've been eating whatever I wanted initially. I was coming from no sugar and no flour with more weighing and measuring and calorie counting. I definitely lose weight calorie counting, but it's a lot of work and doesn't feel sustainable for me, although I did try for about four months this summer. I quickly regain any weight though when I go off that plan. I've actually stuck with this for a lot longer than typical for me. I've been waiting for the appetite correction to occur, and it definitely has. In the last few weeks, I had been eating healthier. I read the appetite correction book, and he'd recommended that if you're not losing any weight to try low carb. I've gone back on low carb, which is not my favorite. Now I'm starting to get frustrated, I think, because of the fact that I'm doing low carb and I don't like doing that long term as much. I feel willing to stick with low carb or keto if it's short term to get things jump started. I've done keto for months at a time with no significant weight loss in the past. That was doing a dirty fast. I am religious about the clean fast now. I'm wondering if I should continue doing what I'm doing with low carb for now and give it a few weeks, or if I need to change up my fasting protocol or any other suggestions that you might have. I'm 54 and I currently weigh between 140 to 142 pounds. I'm trying to lose about 10 to 15 pounds. I'm very active. I do a lot of running and Peloton and weight training about four to six times a week. Occasionally, I do a lunchtime window, which actually works really well for me, but it's just not convenient. I like the convenience of not having to pack food at work. Any suggestions would be welcome. Yeah, there's like a million factors here that I'm going to dig into for you, Ashley. And so many factors, <laughs> so many things going on. First of all, you've been kind of dabbling with fasting for a couple of years, but you just started fasting clean eight weeks ago. So I really have found over time that when you have been doing fasting, but not fasting clean, and then you finally start with the clean fast, like all that other time, think about that as calorie restriction and not, you know, getting the benefits of, of fasting. So you are eight weeks in. Now, I want you to think about what you were doing most recently, as in like the summer, you were doing no sugar, no flour, weighing, measuring, calorie counting. So you've been doing restrictive diets recently. And when we have been doing a lot of restrictive dieting, like the fasting you were doing that wasn't clean fasting and the no sugar, no flour, weighing, measuring, calorie counting, when you've been doing all that restriction it takes time for your body to start to trust you. And I do think intermittent fasting is your best bet for reversing any type of metabolic damage that may be going on. But what I wouldn't do is think that you're going to have to do extra more restriction. For example, you hate low carb. You don't want to do low carb. Don't do low carb. 
there's so many different things you could do with your eating. You know, people are like, I'm either eating everything or I'm eating low carb. And there's stuff in, in between that's really healthy. Like, for example, whole foods, real foods. You know, avoid ultra processed foods and eat real foods, high quality, real carb foods. See how that goes. Give it some time. If it were me, I would recommend that you just nail the clean fasting, which you said that you're doing, you know, something around a 19.5, some days maybe 24, some days 18.6. Listen to your body. Focus on high quality foods, real foods. Yeah, I wouldn't eat a bunch of, you know, junky ultra processed carbs, but don't fear the real food carbs that you would like to have. You know, if you've said that you did keto for months at a time with no weight loss, that sounds like me. I did keto for months and had no weight loss. Sounds to me like that's not your weight loss plan. The other thing that's so key is that you only are trying to lose about 10 pounds. So you're going to have to be really, really patient. You're doing a lot of running, you're weight training four to six times a week using your Peloton. You're one of those people that will probably see body recomposition and no changes on the scale. For example, you may never go down a pound on the scale, but change three clothing sizes down. I want you to get a pair of really tight pants and maybe a sports bra. Take a picture wearing that now from several angles. And then every few weeks, repeat those photos from the same angles and compare them. That is going to be a much better indication of the changes that your body is making than the scale. You may even see the scale go up. If you are only focusing on what that scale is doing, you may see weight gain and think, oh my gosh, I'm gaining weight. This is not working when really you're building so much muscle and it's making the scale go up with that much activity and the intermittent fasting. So I want you to, in summary, I want you to relax about the scale, find another way to measure your progress. Don't feel like you have to be so extreme all or nothing, you know, low carb or else you're just eating all the things, whole foods, real foods, try that. I don't want you to weigh and measure and calorie count. I want you to eat real foods in an eating window that feels right to you until you're satisfied and then be patient with your body. It might take, you know, 10 months for you to get where you want to go with your body, even though you only want to lose about 10 pounds and you might not lose any scale pounds. So just really think about how you're going to measure your progress besides the scale. That is just so important. I'm going to actually come to your house in the middle of the night and hide your scale. So (laughs) that's really probably the best thing that could happen. Smash it with a hammer. Get rid of that thing. It is not going to be helpful in your journey with all that working out. What do you have to say, Melanie? I have a quick question about the scale thing because I know we've talked about that before. So is the recommendation with the scale basically one of two things, either never weigh or weigh like every day? Yeah, that's what I believe. I think you should weigh every day and calculate your weekly average or use an app that does it for you, like Happy Scale, or you should put the scale away completely. Weighing once a week is the worst because your weight fluctuates and you might catch yourself on an upswing. I talk about this and analyze it in the weighing chapter of Delay, Don't Deny, and I have it even more detailed in my new book, Fast Feast Repeat, available for pre-order coming out June 2nd. I have even more details about this concept there because it's only your overall trend that matters. But for somebody like Ashley here, who's already in a good weight range, I'm sure if she only wants to lose about 10 pounds, she's in her healthy weight range. And she's just trying to get to the weight where she feels her best or what she thinks she wants to weigh. But 
when you're that close to what you perceive as your ideal weight, the scale really does become meaningless. And I like to tell the story about how for me, you know, I stopped weighing after a year of maintenance and I continued to drop two more jean sizes. And then after, I don't know, about 17 months or 14 months or whatever it was, I can't remember now, I got back on the scale thinking I had lost another 10 pounds because I was down two jean sizes. And I was only down two pounds on the scale from where I had been the last time I weighed. And I got really mad because I felt like I should weigh less. So I am smaller at a higher weight than I had been in the past. And if I were just trying to hit a target on the scale, I would be continually frustrated and never got there. You know, I'm wearing size zero jeans and I never got to my quote, the goal I wanted to see on the scale after I set a new goal for myself of what I felt like I quote should weigh. I never weighed that. So the scale became meaningless for me. And that's the day I threw my scale away for good. It wasn't useful for me anymore. Yeah. I thought that was a good thing to clarify because it seems like, you know, the two completely different approaches, but they both have their place. Yeah, I'm not anti-scale. If she wanted to lose 50 pounds, I would have different advice. Because if you want to lose 50 pounds, you know, you're going to want to possibly, unless you hate the scale and it doesn't work for you, you can totally just go buy your clothes. But, you know, you're not going to, you know, go to your goal size and not lose any weight on the scale, right? If you're trying to lose 50 pounds. But for 10, you absolutely could. You could get to your goal body and never see your goal scale number. We just hear over and over again, people who are like, you know, I have my addresses from when I weighed this before and they're swimming on me, even though I'm the same weight that it's not vanity sizing because it's the exact same piece of clothing you used to wear. You saved it and now it doesn't fit you at the same weight. That's how you know your body has changed. We call it body recomposition. Yeah. I really liked this question from Ashley. I know it was like very specific and had, you know, a lot, a lot going on in it. But I think it's a type of mindset that a lot of people fall into where it's like, you know, you have all these different potential tools in the toolbox to try and there's a feeling of impatience and you just want to get there fast. And so there's this tendency to not give something long enough because you're not seeing results fast enough. So you feel like you need to be doing more and then it gets too restrictive and then you just get sort of angry because you're doing all this restriction. And so... I think there's something to be said for giving yourself more time and like committing to a certain approach for a little bit longer and then reevaluating rather than feeling like you have to do all the things right now and see the scale drop 10 pounds tomorrow because (laughs) it's probably not going to happen. And then it can lead to the opposite effect, the whole, you know, the what the heck effect where you're like, whatever, I'm just going to, you know, do whatever I want. For example, like she talks about basically not wanting to do keto at all, but she's still considering doing keto. That would be an example where I'd be like, no, if you don't want to do keto, don't do keto. Or And she did it and didn't lose any weight. Yeah. Although not with, um, seems like it probably wasn't with intermittent fasting at the time. No, but it was with keto. If you did keto by itself and didn't lose any weight on keto by itself, it's probably not good for your body. Because when it is good for your body, you'll feel it. Well, one thing I was going to say was, If she doesn't like the idea of keto, but she thinks there is a potential here because she hasn't done keto with intermittent fasting before, I would say there's nothing wrong. I would like lose all sense of having to commit to any one thing for the rest of your life. And and you could try, I don't see anything wrong with trying keto for like two weeks with intermittent fasting and just see and be like, this is only for two weeks. I'm just going to see what happens. And then if I like it and it's doing well, I'll keep going. If not, then... 
I won't. Like, I don't think everything has to be so like intense. I would encourage Ashley to continue on with the clean fast, make that like be consistent and then feel free to tweak things from there. A lot of times those 10 pounds can be the quote vanity pounds. So they're the type of pounds that your body's going to do everything it can to not lose them. And that might be the sort of thing where it's complicated because you're talking about how she's coming from this whole like restrictive past. So this is like a new paradigm in a way with intermittent fasting. So we don't want to focus on restriction or anything like that. But as far as like a vanity perspective, like sometimes you would have to go to less than intuitive measures to get there. The what I'm thinking of is like, I think the most metabolically supportive crash diet that people do would be something like a protein sparing modified fast type situation. I'm not advocating for, <laughs> for doing that, but I'm saying that's the type of thing that if another reason I'm bringing this up is they've shown with dieters, I talked about this before, there was a study where they were trying to see long-term what was the most beneficial type of dieting for sustained weight loss. And they found people actually did best when they lost a lot of weight fast at the beginning, but then it got harder if they stayed on it. Cause we often say, you know, lose the weight slowly, which is what Jen just discussed, which is totally an option, but some people don't do well with that because they get frustrated and then they give up. So some people actually do well with losing a lot of weight fast, but then that's not sustainable long-term. So that's where the problem comes in is people want to stay in this restrictive diet when these restrictive things should never, I don't think ever have been long-term. And I think a lot of people come where that's all it's been has been long-term restriction. So it's this really complicated thing where it's like, if we could like erase everything, like start over blank slate, like nothing ever happened. And maybe we had a person wanting to lose weight. I actually think maybe from a motivational standpoint, from like a metabolic standpoint, maybe the quote healthiest thing for long-term sustainability and metabolic health would be like two weeks of protein sparing modified fast, lose a lot of weight fast, and then move on to something very sustainable with intermittent fasting and whole foods. But that's like a person who doesn't have a history of restrictive dieting, who doesn't have the worry of rebound. Like it's just so complicated. So I feel like I made things really complicated in everything that I just said. I don't want to sound like I'm endorsing crash dieting, but I'm saying you have to like look at what you want. And I think in the end, it really is about committing to something sustainable and something that you want to be doing. A good quote from, I think it's from Dr. Ted Neiman and William Schufelt's book, their new book about protein. They had some quote about like something about like the only way you'll have long-term sustained weight loss is if you enjoy the diet that got you there. And I thought that was a really good way of viewing it. You know, because if you can find a diet that you enjoy that does naturally lead you to the body composition that you like, then it will be sustainable and you won't have to worry about this rebound effect. So I feel like that was a lot of complicated stuff. Yeah. If someone does think that they have metabolic adaptation through lots of dieting they've done in the past and they are working with a slowed metabolism, we've talked about this before. I think an alternate daily fasting protocol, also known as up and down days, can really make a difference. You have the one day of restriction. It can be a 500 calorie day or it could be a complete fast. And then the next day is your up day. So I think that you know, that's the up days are protective of metabolic rate. The down days are where you access your stored fat and you repeat that pattern over and over again. People have great results with that. Yeah. The only thing I think that can sometimes be a problem is if people make like really, really intense choices in the the eating window that would further metabolic damage, you know? So rather than just like 
healthily refeeding, but actually, you know, being super inflammatory or super stress on the body. But the people who it works for, it obviously works great. And we see in the studies that even when, you know, it seems to mitigate a lot of the effects that could otherwise be negative. It's a very well-researched strategy. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, this has been absolutely wonderful. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? Nope. Although I am excited. I will say this. I'm about to get a shipment of, oh gosh, what do they call it? I'm going to have to look it up. I can't remember the name of it. With my new book, I'm about to get the ARC copies, advanced reader copies, I think they're called. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah. I'm so excited. So I'm about to have my, my first look at, at Fast Feast Repeat. That is very exciting. How it looks in book form. Yeah, it really is exciting. I just had this moment. I was like, I should invite you on my podcast. Talk about your book. <laughs> oh, that's funny. That'd be hilarious. I'm just thinking about what that would look like. <laughs> you know, if I tried to like approach it from like not knowing you, like just read your book. Yeah, I don't think so. Well, I mean, you could read my book as if, you know, just that would be interesting. (laughs) Pretend like you don't know me and read it. But having me on the podcast, people, I think pretty sure people would know. All right. So a few things for listeners before we go. So if you'd like to submit your own questions for the podcast, you can directly email questions at ifpodcast.com. Or you can go to ifpodcast.com and you can submit questions there. We are a Himalaya Partners show. And if you follow us in the Himalaya app, you'll get early access to the podcast 24 hours in advance. So definitely check that out. You can also find all of these stuff that we like, all the random stuff we talk about. That's at ifpodcast.com slash stuff we like. If you're enjoying the podcast and would like to take a moment and write a brief iTunes review, that would absolutely mean the world. It really helps spread the intermittent fasting message to everybody and find new listeners. And you can follow us on Instagram. We are IF Podcast. I'm Melanie Avalon. Jen is Jen Stevens. And you can follow us on Twitter. We are the IF Pod. Okie dokie. Anything from you, Jen, before we go? No, I think that's it. You survived the tornado? I did. I did. It was really scary though. I mean, I really had a moment of being scared when I started getting the alerts on my phone that said tornado warning. That was a little scary. Yeah. Jen messaged me I didn't realize it was like quite a big deal. So I was like, do we need to reschedule? She's like, I'm looking for cover. I was like, oh, (laughs) I was running through the house looking for cover because I mean, all I saw was tornado warning and they named like a shopping center that's not very far from me that was like, it was going over. I'm like, oh, okay, then I could just sit here in my podcast studio by the big windows in the front of the house, but that's the direction the tornado is coming from. So I think I won't. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, I'm in the I'm in the closet. I can't I can't record right now. Crazy. Okie dokie. Well, I will talk to you next week. All right, I'll talk to you then. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Intermittent Fasting Podcast. Please remember that everything discussed on the show is not medical advice. We're not doctors. You can also check out our other podcasts, Intermittent Fasting Stories, and the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Theme music was composed by Leland Cox. See you next week.